everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Joelle Min. And I'm Daenerys. And today we're sitting down with Professor Martha Jones, the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor, Professor of History, and a professor at the SNF Agora Institute at the Johns Hopkins University. Professor Jones is the author of Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All, selected as one of Time's 100 must-read books for 2020. Her 2018 book, Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America, also received multiple awards from the Organization of American Historians, the American Historical Association, and the American Society for Legal History. A public historian, she also writes for major news outlets including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, USA Today, Politico, and the Chronicle of Higher Education. Professor Jones holds a PhD in history from, the Colum- from Columbia University and a JD from the CUNY School of Law, which bestowed upon her the degree of Doctor of Laws Honoris Causa in 2019. Prior to her academic career, she was a public interest litigator in New York City. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. Thanks very much for having me. So the first question we wanted to ask you about was just about your change in career. Um, as we mentioned at the end there, before you were an academic, you were a public interest litigator. So what motivated you to change from this public litigation path into academia? I think after um, almost 10 years of law practice, um, where my work focused on disability rights, um, ending with an important time representing uh, women with HIV and AIDS in New York. Um, There are two ways to describe why I took a pause. Um, On the one hand, um, law practice doesn't give you a lot of time for reflection. It's fast-paced, it's high pressure, um, and I began to realize I knew too little about the the long story, the roots, the origins of some of the things I was seeing in my practice. So I wanted to learn more. Um, And the other thing was, um, I say this in a funny way, but it's quite serious. I wasn't sure I wanted to fight with people for a living the rest of my days. Um, And so uh, I had an opportunity. That's really the answer, though. I had an opportunity at Columbia University. Um, The Charles Revson Fellowship there offered people in public interest work in New York City a year-long sabbatical. You could come to the campus, take classes, explore things, rethink your career. And I wanted to come to study history. And before the year was done, I had committed to staying on to do a Ph.D., Right, thank you. And I guess in your endeavors within the field of history, you noted on specifically difficult history. And, and I think that's especially important in your work as you have a focus on women um, and, and how difficult history has been of great comfort um, because it's an opportunity in our own time to let it be a source of understanding and strength rather than confusion and shame. So how has the writing process transformed your understanding and strength of historical events and narratives? You know, writing is the time where we finally get to um, process and to make sense and to 
um, really understand the research that we do. I spend a lot of my time in archives. Um, I love the detective hunt. Um, but writing is the place where I begin to make sense of what I find. Um, and to sit with what are oftentimes um, difficult histories, hard histories. Um, my most recent book um, begins in the early years of the 19th century in the United States and importantly takes readers through the history of slavery, um, slavery and sexual violence in that story. Um, and so um, it is also an opportunity, the writing, to understand why are you asking readers to come through this difficult history? Why are you asking readers to spend time here like you have with these materials um, to be sure um, that your work is not um, exploitative, that your work is not purient in some way, but that um, you are writing toward um, a greater insight and a greater purpose. Um, so um, I hope that is the that readers experience my writing, they experience my books and articles as a space that um, respects them, but as importantly respects um, the people of the past who are part of those histories. Um, I hope ultimately because I think it helps us be more courageous about the many kinds of conf confrontations we're bound to have with a difficult past. I really love this idea of what you express, kind of history being a place for insights um, and also a way for people to kind of learn and sit with these new ideas. And I think um, that especially has me wondering, you know, how can undergraduate students use history as a means of institutional reform? Um, and I think that's especially important in light of holding universities and colleges like CMC um, accountable for potentially unjust pasts. Yes. So today I, um, I had a lab called Hard Histories at Hopkins. Um, the lab grew out of a um, somewhat unexpected but important um, revelation about um, our founder and namesake, Johns Hopkins. We had long spoken of Mr. Hopkins as having been a Quaker and an abolitionist. It turned out he was, in fact, a slaveholder. Um, I created the lab because I wanted undergraduates to be part of our exploration of Mr. Hopkins's life, but of the university history more broadly. Um, A, because I hoped some of you would come on board and catch the history bug and, and, and join us and, and, and become historians. Um, but also because I think you all are ultimately uh, important stewards of these institutions. Um, that is to say, you will shift from being students um, to being alums, to being benefactors, to being trustees, some of you. And for me, um, one of the educations, one of the best educations to prepare you for that is for you to immerse yourselves in the hard histories of your own institution. Um, I think that um, ultimately the goal of the work in our lab is to examine critically many of the stories we tell about ourselves as an institution. That's not unique to Johns Hopkins at all. All institutions tell stories about themselves. All of them 
or many of them, I'll say, um, lean on myths and partial truths and sometimes misunderstandings. And one of the things we can do in the lab is confront some of those myths and misunderstandings and replace them with um, our very deliberate and very careful um, research. And we see what people do with that, which is to say, then it will be up to people who um, run departments and run schools and run institutions and um, including alums and trustees to um, chart a new way forward. Um, but that new way forward, I think, requires us to first come through and challenge some of the assumptions that we operate under. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I, I was recently reading kind of uh, the essay, First the Streets, Then the Archives, that you wrote, and I thought it was just a really beautiful way for me to be connected to history coming from a background of local politics. And so, I mean, as a historian, what is your perspective on how um, how we can bring previously untold or unknown stories into the mainstream, and if you've seen more recent innovations of history telling? Sure. I think um, that essay, which I actually really love too, I know you're not supposed to say that about <laughs> your work, but um, uh, was written at a very critical moment when I was trying to, in a sense, wed um, an earlier part of my professional life, my time as a lawyer, with my current professional life. And I think that what I hope folks would take away from that is their own sense of how our questions about the past are oftentimes right in front of us. In that essay, I want to understand why there are homeless people living up next to the housing court in New York City, the place that is charged with protecting tenants and the housing stock. Um, turns out to also be the home for people without homes. Um, how did that happen? And that can lead us then into writing new kinds of histories with new kinds of protagonists, with new kinds of questions and more. Um, and my work, I think more generally, has become just that. It urges everyone, all of us, to look around us um, that might be our own communities, it might be our own families, it might be the institutions that we're connected to, but to look around us and to recognize that there are historical questions just begging to be answered um, and that those questions might seem at first blush small um, or personal um, or too peculiar. Um, but I think now, history as an enterprise, as a field, um, is able to, and in some quarters, welcomes our small, peculiar um, histories, um, helping stitch them into a bigger fabric uh, about the past. Right. I really like that idea of kind of bringing, you know, getting a larger picture out of even these little personal stories um, and kind of finding a bigger historical bent to it. Um, and I think that that, for me, ties into your book, Vanguard, about Black women and their role. Um, and so I really wanted to ask you about how what we can learn from these women that you write about in this book um, and how and what we can implement in modern movements that aim to be more intersectional and kind of consider what all these identities together do. Sure. 
Oh, there's a lot there, but I'll try and be brief. Um, the first thing to say is that um, Vanguard, Vanguard begins with stories about the women in my own family. And so this is connected to the earlier question um, that I realized I couldn't finish that book without coming through the women in my own family. And it turns out that when I took a closer look at them, um, what I discovered um, that they, as black women in the American South in the 20th century, um, did not always or uniformly benefit from the so-called women's suffrage amendment, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, um, that they had to wait many decades, um, some of them until 1965 and the passage of the Voting Rights Act out of the modern civil rights movement, before they could cast ballots as American women because of anti-black racism in so many American states, especially in the South. Um, so here, um, again, I'm starting with that small story, but part of what the small story is teaching me is that the story of women in the vote doesn't end in 1920 at all, that it is just the beginning of a new movement for women's votes in the United States, now one necessarily led by black American women who still find themselves disenfranchised despite the federal amendment. Um, so their lessons are multifold. Um, but for us, I think the most important lesson in this conversation, right, is not only that we recover those stories, but we respect them and we make them part of our analysis. And then it turns out we have entirely new stories to tell about the past. Great. Um, while I was thinking about your book, um, I had recently read Kimberly Crenshaw's Demarginalizing the Intersection and learning about Title VII and how there are certain interpretations of it are limiting to either race or sex. And that was kind of the legal foundation of this removal of intersectionality that excluded so many black women. And I've been thinking about how, you know, you've had this extensive legal education and legal career. And so how has that helped formulate into your understanding of history and in writing this book? Well, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> now, my teachers my uh, uh, in my history program um, thought uh, it was terrible that I had been a lawyer because I was a terrible writer. Hmm. And I was, an, and I argued like a lawyer, and not like a historian. What that means is lawyers argue with, you know, they drive toward a very uh, specific conclusion, while historians like to meander and think about contingencies and try varying hypotheses. And um, so, um, but I was a student uh, of, of Kimberly Crenshaw's work when I myself was, uh, you know, in law school and. And beyond, I taught critical race theory in Crenshaw for, for many years um, at the University of Michigan Law School. Um, that's all to say that I guess um, I believe, now I'm going to make an I believe statement, but <laughs> I believe that um, as we move through life, those of us who are women, people of color, women of color, People will tell you all day about your deficits, about what you ha don't have, what you haven't done, what you don't know. But it turns out that sometimes those deficits are your greatest assets. 
And so for me, it took me a while to learn that my legal work, my legal career, my way of arguing wasn't a deficit. It was an asset and that I needed to bring everything I had. I should bring everything I am to my work as a historian rather than trying to mold myself into somebody else's idea of who a historian is, how a historian works, what a historian writes. Um, and that's a long lesson for me. So now I'm saying it on the podcast so that you all don't have to spend all those years wondering. Right? If anytime tells you somebody tells you something about you is a deficit, just flip it because the flip is the truth. That, that is your asset. That is your strength. That is the thing you bring that is oftentimes makes you distinctly insightful, distinctly driven, and more. Um, don't let anybody tell you it's your deficit. It's your strength. Yeah, thank you for that advice. I feel like that's something we all need. Um, you know, especially for for me, for example, I'm going into I'm graduating soon. I'm going to be a young professional. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. Um, but that's something that I definitely want to remember, um, you know, coming into a space where, you know, I'm kind of starting over from the bottom of the rung and having to climb back up. But I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this idea of, of personal strengths in relation to, you know, the other things you do in addition to writing, being, being an historian, um, specifically in regards to your experience with curating museum exhibits and also consulting on video productions. So how do you think these personal strengths, either from your legal career or, you know, these insights that you gain from your career in academia, um, how have those played into your work on these video productions? Um, and when you curate museums exhibits or, or these productions, how does that play into um, how you choose what stories to tell or what pieces of information to include in those? This more creative work um, was not part of my plan at all. Um, but one of the best strengths I think I bring to what I do is that I'm infinitely curious. Um, and when I can't figure out the answer, I'm going to make friends with somebody who can help me figure out the answer. And so the story of the um, curating museum exhibitions goes back to being in an archive, working with an archivist on some illustrations for a book. And one conversation led to the next, led to the next, next thing, next thing he was showing me things that weren't on my agenda. And we were developing an intellectual partnership um, that blossomed into museum exhibitions. So bring your curiosity, um, find your people um, and invest in them. And, um, and there we were creating these initially what seemed like really outlandish ideas about exhibitions. Um, similarly, I think with the video productions, this is not on my agenda, this is not my strength, is to remember that um, you have a role to play. Um, I have a role to play as a historian in a video production. I can work with you behind the scenes as you're planning the production. I can be a talking head, um, but I have to be part of a team. And um, as historians, we're not always trained to work collaboratively. Um, so here, 
um, willing to give up some of the control, right? Letting somebody else have authorship, um, taking a second seat or a third seat in a process, um, but in exchange, right? Not only being on the inside, like you all are inviting me to be on the inside of the podcast today when I'm watching everything that's going on and I'm fascinated, uh, but also, right, giving me a platform, a new kind of platform for my work and my ideas. Um, but you have to be willing to um, be deeply collaborative and to subordinate your the idea that you must be in charge at every turn. Nobody wants to work with you if you're running everything. Hardly anybody does. All right. Um, and we're wondering, do you have a favorite historical figure? Who is it and why are they your favorite? Mm, I do. <laughs> Great. Um, and her name is Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. And I believe it might be true that she is in certainly in every book I've ever written and many, many articles. I, I didn't plan it that way, but recently I look back and I realized it was true. Frances Harper is born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1825. She is educated there. She is not a slave. She's a free black woman. And after she's educated, she goes off to Pennsylvania to become a, uh, a teacher herself. Um, soon she is writing poetry um, and she is quite gifted. Um, she is a powerful and very effective public speaker and joins the anti-slavery lecture circuit. Um, and by the 1860s, she's a suffragist um, in conventions that are debating women's rights and voting rights and more. Um, she has a beautiful line from 1866 that I loved so much, I used it in a book title. But when debating the question of voting rights and should women vote, should black Americans vote, should black women vote, Harper says, um, we are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity. And this sentiment has just never left me. Um, this her strong sense, despite all of the extraordinary denigration and more she was subjected to as a black woman, this vision of all of us as connected to one another, that human rights are really the, where the bar sits when we think about something like political rights and much more. Um, she goes on to be a novelist, um, to raise a daughter, Mary, um, and to train her in the art of elocution. She lives a long and fascinating life. Um, but for me, she is someone who really stands for our best human rights ideals and she does it so early as a black woman in Philadelphia in the 1860s. Thank you for sharing that story. I think that was really that was really beautiful. Um, we had a poet come here last week, Tayemba Jess, and his work is really about um, also exploring historical stories of yes. creatives and um, people fighting for liberation. And so um, that for me was you know a really kind of a callback almost to talking to him about that. Um, I think my last very quick question for you before we wrap up here is for any aspiring historians on CMC's campus, um, how do you think they can go about, you know, doing doing something similar to you, finding a, a project or a topic that's really that they really feel passionate about? 
So I'm going to draw on my one-time teacher, um, Professor Richard Bushman, who said to me, well, Martha, a, a good historian can write a history of anything. Um, what he was really trying to do is get me out of the books, out of the classroom, and into the archives. And so that's what I would say to anyone. You have special collections here. You have so many in this part of the country. Um, take yourself to the archive, root around, scratch the itch, find your curiosities, um, and then come back and let your faculty help you figure out what to make of it. But for me, the archive is um, the holy grail. And I think many of us become historians because we love being there. So set aside the books, get out of the classroom and get to the archives. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, that's unfortunately all the time we have today. So thank you, Professor Jones, for joining us. And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry. 